Welcome to Bible Study, Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. Mario Savio, a student at UC Berkeley in the early 1960s, who participated in the civil rights movement, including the famous Freedom Summer, and as a result suffered at least one assault in Mississippi and at least two stints in jail in California, is most well known for the following words in a speech at Berkeley on December 2nd, 1964. There is a time when the operation of the machine becomes so odious, makes you so sick at heart, that you can't take part. You can't even passively take part. And you've got to put your bodies upon the gears, and upon the wheels, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus. And you've got to make it stop. And you've got to indicate to the people who run it, to the people who own it, that unless you're free, the machine will be prevented from working at all. That's Mario Savio, December 2nd, 1964. Mario Savio was a white man who lived in and was a citizen of the richest and most powerful nation the world has ever known. But he was able to see that his privilege was predicated on the oppression of others, and that there is a point at which talking with the powers that be about justice is no longer enough, a point at which one must decide whether to join the struggle for justice with one's body. Jesus and his disciples, as portrayed in the Gospel of Matthew, are poor, destitute peasants, living under the occupation of perhaps the most powerful empire the world has ever known. Jesus preaches to the crowds about the establishment of a new society of justice for everyone. Jesus debates with the upper-class scribes. But there comes a point in the story when talking is no longer enough, when the decision must be made to escalate the struggle to the point of martyrdom. Jesus has already mentioned that this will be necessary, and he will continue to teach and debate. But at the end of chapter 16, he begins his inexorable march south to the capital city to engage the empire with his body to throw his body upon the gears of the machine, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus, as a judgment on it. And so here begins the second half of the story told in Matthew's Gospel. My name is Bert Newton, and this is Episode 43 of Bible Study, Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. Jesus and his disciples are at the far northern end of Galilee, in the district of Caesarea Philippi, where there is a temple where the dead Augustus Caesar is worshipped as a god. It is here that the story takes a turn when Jesus says that he must go to Jerusalem. And although he doesn't actually leave Galilee until the beginning of chapter 19, 
The trek southward through Galilee begins here, from Caesarea Philippi to Jerusalem, from a city named after Roman royalty to the capital of Israel, the seat of a Roman puppet government, from a city with a temple to Caesar built by Herod the Great, to a city with the temple to the God of Israel also built by Herod the Great. Let's read the first verse. Matthew 16:21 From that time on Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised Jesus says that he must go to Jerusalem or another way of translating it is it is necessary for him to go the little greek verb being translated as must or it is necessary delta epsilon iota or dei pronounced dei makes its first appearance in the story right here it is a verb that scholars recognize as signaling the apocalyptic motif of a secret plan being carried out one scholar puts it this way It is crucial to understand that this sort of deterministic statement is not made out of a generally fatalistic belief or hope. It belongs specifically to apocalypticism. The theological emphasis of this assertion is to strengthen the faithful in times of frightful suffering. The reader is to understand that the sufferings of Jesus were a crucial part of the eschatological drama. So were the sufferings of John before him. So we the audience are to understand that there is a plan there is a script it is a secret or subversive script it is not the normal script that the old society is used to it is a script that has been flipped reversed jesus will win not by killing his enemies but by being killed another way that this has been explained which i think is also correct and is complimentary if incomplete is that this is the way of all prophets and righteous people who struggle for justice this is the only way to establish the new society one must go to jerusalem confront the powers that be and be mistreated and killed like all of the prophets who came before but he won't just be killed he will rise again which takes it out of the realm of just the natural way of things and into the sphere of apocalypticism and that will become clearer as the passage progresses but first peter who just in the last episode recognized jesus as the messiah the son of the living god who was praised by jesus as the one on whom the new ecclesia the church will be built peter cannot understand like the disciples as a whole he goes back and forth between understanding and not understanding he cannot comprehend jesus undergoing humiliation and death and so he tries to stop jesus from taking this journey to jerusalem let's continue with verses 22 to 23 peter took him aside and began to rebuke him never lord he said this shall never happen to you jesus turned and said to peter Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. 
You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. The audience should recall that Satan's second temptation for Jesus back in chapter 4 was to avoid martyrdom, to be rescued by angels, something that Jesus will specifically refuse to do when he is arrested. Here, Peter repeats that temptation. He tries to stop Jesus from going to the cross. Peter, that dependable solid rock, becomes a conduit for Satan's message, Satan's temptation. But Jesus rebukes Peter. Jesus responds that not only he himself, but anyone who wants to be his disciple, anyone who wants to be a member of this traveling peasant scribal school, must be willing to go to the cross. The term disciple, which has been used constantly throughout the story to designate those who have committed to following Jesus, indicates students who follow a rabbi and are part of a scribal school. But this scribal school is no mere school for intellectual nerds who like to geek out on Torah debates. This is a school where students learn through struggle and in which the final text is not words on parchment, but how one lives their life. Jesus calls them to take up the cross, verses 24 to 26. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Today, because we live at a time when crucifixion is a practice of the distant past, and because many of us were taught to understand these verses as metaphor, this talk of taking up the cross to be a follower of Jesus has lost a lot of its punch. But for the original audience, this talk of crucifixion might have been a kick in the gut. Crucifixion was probably the worst sort of death imaginable, both in terms of pain and humiliation. New Testament scholar Bart Ehrman has written a very powerful description of both the reason that Rome crucified people and what crucifixion was like. Ehrman writes, Roman power was very real, very tangible, very palpable, and it was played out on the bodies of those who tried to oppose it. Crucifixion was the perfect mode of execution for anyone engaging in, supporting, or endorsing violent opposition to the Roman state. You think you can oppose us? Well, then this is what we will do to you to show you how powerful you really are. We will take you, strip you naked, drag you to a public place, nail your hands or wrists to a crossbeam, nail your feet to an upright, set you up as a public spectacle for people to see and mock. By doing so, we will not only torture you to death, often it took a couple of days for a person to die of asphyxiation, we will reveal to all who can see how helpless you are. Your hands and your feet will be nailed securely to wood, and you will be left to hang in a position where you cannot fend for yourself. You will not be able to move your body. 
You will not be able to wave off the scavenging birds. You will not be able to kick away the roaming dogs. You will not be able to lift a finger to help yourself. We can do this to you. And if you oppose our power, this is what we will do to you. Crucifixion was not merely death by torture. It was a symbolic statement that we are Roman power and you are nothing. And if you oppose us, we will prove it by rendering you absolutely, completely powerless while we rack your body with pain and make you scream. That's the description by Bart Ehrman. And that is the sort of thing that the original audience would have had in mind when Jesus says that anyone who wants to be his disciple must take up the cross. But, although Rome meant it as a deterrent to rebellion, it may not have worked as well as they had hoped it would, because rebellions were frequent, and Rome had to constantly crucify thousands of people. Around the time that Jesus was born, Rome crucified 2,000 Jewish rebels, and after the uprising from 66 to 70, they crucified thousands more, and many more were crucified in between those times. To call people to take up the cross was a way of saying, become an enemy of the empire. It has even been suggested that this may have been a slogan used by revolutionaries who knew that they would likely end up on a cross for their revolutionary activities. The Romans often made their crucifixion victims carry the crossbeam to the site of the actual crucifixion. So for rebels to call each other to take up the cross was like saying, be prepared to carry that crossbeam. Today we might say, put a target on your back. But of course, taking up the cross was much worse than merely being shot. So Jesus is calling his disciples to make themselves enemies of the empire, to follow him in confronting the powers of oppression wherever they are, in Caesarea, Jerusalem, or Rome. He calls them to be willing to undergo this painful, slow, humiliating torture to the death. But the final outcome will not be death, but victory. Verse 27. For the Son of Man is about to come in his Father's glory with the angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. The coming of the Son of Man, or the coming of the human one, is an image taken from Daniel 7, which describes a heavenly court scene in which God judges the empires. In Daniel's vision, four beasts that represent four empires that ruled over and oppressed Israel rise out of a stormy sea to rule the earth in succession. But then God, the Ancient of Days, arrives and holds court. And in that court session, God takes authority from the beasts and gives it to one like a son of man. Or, in other words, God takes authority from the empires and gives it to a figure who was portrayed as looking like a human being, one like a son of man. Daniel seven thirteen to 14 reads, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. Jesus in Matthew says that the Son of Man, or the human one, 
is about to come. This coming of the human one is about to happen. That word about is not translated in many of the English translations. I'm not sure why, but it is there. And some translations, such as the Common English Bible, do translate it. It signals that what Jesus is talking about is about to happen. It's going to happen very soon, like when he goes to Jerusalem. The human one is about to come. And notice also that this coming of the human one to judge is paired with the call for disciples to take up the cross. The coming of the human one, the victory, is in the cross, not just in the resurrection. It is in the cross. The coming of the human one is about to happen soon, and also it occurs whenever disciples take up the cross. That is a super important thing to notice. The coming of the human one is about to happen in Jerusalem, at the cross, and also happens whenever disciples answer the call to take up the cross. That is what the coming of the human one means in this story in Matthew. Whenever someone takes up the cross, it takes power away from the empire. For the empire, then, cannot place the cross on that disciple. Rather, the disciple is making that decision, taking up the cross. This robs the empire of its power. The power of the empire is in its ability to hold people in fear of death, especially in fear of crucifixion. But when people decide that they are not afraid, the empire loses its power because the people have taken back their power to resist and chart their own course. That is the coming of the human one. While rewarding each person according to what they have done might sound highly individualistic to us, it was a common refrain in the literature of ancient Israel to describe God's judgment on those who oppress the poor. And here, it is the purpose of the coming of the human one, which we have seen is an image from Daniel of judgment on the empires. So that is how the early church understood the cross. It was a frightening, horrifying tool of imperial torture that was transformed into a symbol of judgment on the empire. The cross was the coming of the Son of Man, the coming of the human one. The cross for the early church meant victory over the powers of oppression. We can see this in the early church writings. Colossians 2.15 states, Having disarmed the powers and authorities, God made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. In the Gospel of John, when Jesus is about to go to the cross, he says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out. 1 Corinthians 1.18 reads, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And then the book of Revelation is all about the judgment of God on the Roman Empire through the Lamb that was slain, an image of the crucified Jesus. So that makes a lot of sense of what comes next. 
which often ties both academic interpreters and common readers alike in knots. The last verse of the chapter, verse 28. Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Jesus can't say that everyone will live to see it, because one of the disciples that he is speaking to is Judas, who will hang himself before Jesus is crucified. But the rest of the disciples will live to see it. The coming of the human one is not some distant event at the end of all things, but rather it is the crucifixion of Jesus and the crucifixion of all who follow in his footsteps, which is judgment on the crucifiers. Jesus calls his disciples, his students, to take up the cross as enemies of the empire, because whenever they do that, they take power away from the empire. They win, and the Son of Man, the human one, comes with the glory of the new society. My name is Bert Newton. The music for this episode has been provided by Bob Nolte and David Martin. Please share this podcast with your friends and enemies and everyone in between. Also, if you can, please give us five-star ratings on Apple Podcast or Stitcher or wherever you can. Thank you so much to all who have done that. That really helps draw people to this podcast. You can support this podcast through PayPal. Just send the donation to subversivewisdom at gmail.com. A big thanks to all who have done that. You can also email questions and comments and notes of encouragement and secret hopes of liberation that the Holy Spirit has whispered in your ear to be shouted from the rooftops. You can send all of that to subversivewisdom at gmail.com. This has been Episode 43 of Bible Study, Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel.